Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Jack Luke, Bike Radar's Deputy Editor, and today I'm joined by a wonderful friend, esteemed colleague and all-round shredder, Tom Marvin, Bike Radar's senior technical editor. And today we're going to be bringing you a bit of a Shredder's Digest, an overview of the latest, greatest mountain bike tech news in the world of cycling. Now, like the roads I ride on, my brain is smooth and I'm going to rely on the craggy nodules of Tom's grey matter to enlighten me in all these things. So consider this a warning of the grilling you're about to get oh, crikey. on the, uh, the tech news from the last few weeks. But before that, how are you, Tom? Are you well, healthy? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm feeling moderately healthy. I'm feeling incredibly unfit. I, I feel I haven't really been able to ride bikes for a little while. And I, I just ran down the stairs in the office and, and noticed bits of me jiggling that shouldn't be jiggling. <laughs> so um, I think I need to spend a few more weeks uh, getting back on the bike and pounding out some miles, maybe on the gravel bike. Ooh, very nice. Well, hopefully this will inspire you to get back on the shred sleds as well. I'm always inspired. I love it. I rode yesterday and had a great time. So in today's podcast, we're going to be going through the news that Orange Bikes, after a couple of weeks of uncertainty, have been brought back from the brink and Tom will be outlining what's going on there talk a bit about the new Scott Ransom a really cool new all integrated bike following the trend we've seen with Scott's bikes in the last couple of years now I guess and looking at the Pivot Switchblade a really interesting bike but we're going to focus specifically on just why Pivot as a relatively small brand kind of maybe have so much influence or interest with you our wonderful audience as they happen to so yeah we'll go right from the very top Tom Marvin What's been going on with noted? <laughs> I was going to make a filing cabinet. It's too easy. <laughs> I'll resist. What's been going on with Orange Bikes in the last couple of weeks? 
Orange, it's been a bit of a topsy-turvy world for Orange and well, as we know, the bike industry. But we don't like to sort of focus too much on the negativity that's going on because we all know things aren't great in the bike industry at the moment. Um, so this is, I guess, a little bit of a good news story. So the back end of last year, Orange announced that they were ending their race team. They didn't have like a super high profile one as they have done in the past, but they have had a race team doing the EDRs and that sort of stuff. And so kind of hints were afoot that maybe things weren't quite looking super, super rosy. And then in early January, they announced that they were sort of planning to go into administration and you know things were obviously not great up in the north of England. There's a bit of backwards and forth. Orange has sort of like had been quite an interesting setup in that there was a company, Orange Bikes, who I guess designed, marketed, sold the bikes, and they were linked in some way, shape or form with the factory that built them, but kind of maybe not in the most obvious manner, I guess. And so to be honest, there is a lot of information online with some like quite heavily detailed articles about sort of the structure and how it's been restructured. But basically, Orange Bikes has restructured under the ownership of Ashley Ball, who was one of the directors, I believe, and the original owners of Orange are now not the owners of Orange. Um, But Ashley Ball is running the company. Um, They've restructured and they've purchased the frame manufacturing company. So basically an aluminium fabrication company which made their bikes along with, I believe, other bits and pieces. Um, filing cabinets? <laughs> I, I think it was more ladders and, and TV it? surrounds. Where but did I, the fi- actually, please, it doesn't matter. I was going to say, where did the filing... Let's not quote me on these things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's all now being bought in-house and they're going to be in one location as opposed to split over two. And the goal of that is to sort of streamline the whole process, make it more efficient and basically, in, in their words, keep the orange brand going for another 35 years. And um, they've been around since 1988. Wow. I mean, Orange really are one of those like classic bike companies, along with the likes of Specialized, for example, who have been around maybe not since the beginning, beginning, but around since nearly the beginning, and really have like so much history and heritage here in the UK. They really are like one of those brands that everyone knows about in the UK and, and wider afield as well. Definitely. I mean, it, it's a brand which uh, is close to the heart of many people at Bike mm. Radar, no more so than Alex Evans, who a couple of weeks ago wrote a really good piece about his relationship with the brand when he was a young, budding racer with hair, when he still had yes. a wonderful head of hair. He uh, <laughs> so That's very cruel. <laughs> he, uh, he was actually sponsored by Orange. So yeah, it was a really good piece about I don't know, just his journey with the brand. Mm. We'll put a link to that in the podcast description. It's well worth a read. So is there any hint, Tom, of kind of what's next for Orange? I imagine, you know, very disruptive period. They'll just be finding their feet. But would you dare to speculate what could be next for the brand? Um, I, you know, okay, so... Orange are very well known for their single pivot bikes. Now, they do have a few. They had in the past, like, more traditionally shaped, linkage-driven full suspension bikes. They then reverted back to their classic big swing arm, boxy swing arm, bouncing up and down on a big single pivot. They have had a few bikes recently. Is it the Switch 6? Don't quote me on that. I think it is. But, you know, where like there is a little linkage reintegrated into it. I kind of suspect that they might revert back again to that single pivot system, which is you know, classically orange. I had an orange five as my second ever long-term bike in, I think it's what mountain bike back then, you know, and they have a, like a really distinct ride characteristic. You can argue that multiple linkage frill suspension designs give a better ride. There's not many bikes out there which have had more character than an orange. Mm. So part of me kind of hopes that they keep that going. I think they might slim down their range. Their range is expansive it's relatively complex. They've offered, you know, basically they've got a lot of SKUs. SKU is like, I don't know what, what that stands for. 
I've no idea. I was doing what you were saying. It basically means like if you you know like one (laughs) model of one bike in one color is one SKU, Mm. and if you have a lot of different you know colors and different versions of models and different models, you have an awful lot of different bikes that you effectively need to keep in stock, keep sort of components coming in for you know like you've just got a wild inventory of stuff. So maybe they're going to slim down. That's probably what I would do um, and hopefully keep with their heritage because while they have their detractors, there's also a hell of a lot of people who love a classic single pivot orange. So I would say if it was me running it, if I was Ashley Ball, keep it simple, go back to your roots. uh, And I reckon maybe we'll see them around for another 35 years and we very much hope they do because, yeah, a classic UK British brand, a bit like Hope, Mm -hmm. you know. That sort of thing. I'm just looking on the site now. You are right. There are a lot, like <laughs> a lot of bikes on here. Just even in like the mullet section, what one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different bikes. Yeah. I mean, there are there are variations of similar bikes, but nonetheless, like that's tons. Yeah. And wow. for what is, you know, they are still a relatively small company, and so to have so many different potential bikes that one could buy. I, man, I, I'd get confused. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, With Orange, am I right in saying that they still offer quite an expansive or extensive customization program? Because certainly when I used to work in shops, that was quite a popular option where we'd get people specking from Orange to us as a bike dealer. That was definitely part of the business. I wonder whether that, given it is more complex, a good thing for customers, but definitely more complex. Mm. I wonder if that would be retained in the business. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't looked through those options quite so recently however yeah certainly in the last couple of years they did offer like you know maybe change the forks or whatever it was be i mean the, the classic thing with orange back in the day was that it would do any color you wanted yeah which was so cool you know you get like a fluoro pink swing arm with a like a lime green front triangle you know you could go like you could go mad i think there's an upcharge for that but you know but they've always offered lots of different colors mm. for their frames as well so i think a slim down range would probably do orange good and be no bad thing I think I'm putting my curly brain on. I wonder as well whether the gravel bikes in their range, they've got the Speedwork, which is a sort of commuting bike, the RX-9, which is a, yeah, like more like traditional mm. hardcore gravel bike. And then the X-9, which is a suspension-equipped gravel bike. Like, that's three different models for a non-core part of their business. Yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. imagine that's the sort of stuff that may be trimmed. Mm. The RX-9 has been along for a long time. They were one of the OGs in gravel before gravel was a thing. You yeah. know, along with um, Kotick did, was it the Escapade? Escapade, yeah. And then Singular did a load of things. Mm. You know, this is way before gravel was a term. This was like all road, not quite like cross commuter bike. Mm. They've been doing it for a long time, but. Yeah, the RX-9, Jamie Edwards of Wide Open, he, he still has an RX-9. Oh. He, he, I see him riding around Bristol in a lot. It's probably the only one I see riding around Bristol, but. <laughs> anyway, yes, yeah, so orange bikes were kind of hopeful. There's light at the end of the tunnel mm. there um, for them after a very you know distressing period for everybody involved. Yeah. On to Scott, and there's the new Ransom, which is much like since they bought up Forbidden. Was it Forbidden Bikes? Well, so, right, this, this is something oh, that right. needs clearing up. Okay, well, you go for it. Was it forbidden? No, it wasn't. No, forbidden. it wasn't forbidden. It was bold. Bold. That's so the common conception seems to be that they bought bold in order to buy the internal linkage. Because patent or whatever. Well, so my understanding, and apologies to Scott if I have got this wrong, but I spoke to them about it on the launch of the Genius in 2022. My understanding is that they had already sort of designed their internal linkage system. Mm-hmm. Okay. But they weren't allowed to bring it to market because it was protected. So they bought Bold not to buy the tech, but to enable them to release their bikes oh. that they'd already developed because Bold had the rights or whatever it was. That's my understanding. 
Interesting. Because if you look at when they purchased it, they purchased it, bought, I think, in 2000, 2019, 2000, and then very soon after bought out the spark yeah 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 so it's not like they're going to be turning a bike around nah, in six months especially so. as bold's tech has horizontally mounted shocks whereas the spark and the genius is vertically mounted so anyway that's a bit of the background but the new ransom they've released that it has a horizontally mounted shock it <laughs> is their 170 mil travel enduro bike no surprise that the shock's internal and they've been doing it with yeah the spark and then the genius it was only a matter of time before the ransom got updated but what's kind of interesting with this is that yeah, okay, it's, it's internal, fine. We expected that. It's a six-bar linkage, which is kind of cool. We've seen a few more six-bar linkages come out in the last sort of year or two. could be more removed from the orange we just discussed. <laughs> no, it really couldn't. <laughs> Two-bar to six-bar. Yeah. And that's really interesting. So what a six-bar is is slightly contested in some respects, but basically it means there's six individual parts to the suspension linkage. So the front triangle is one bar. You know, So on an orange, the swing arm is the second bar, two-bar. Mm-hmm. On a four bar, you've got the mainframe, the chain, chain stay. stay, seat stay, rocker. Yeah, four bar, six bar. There's basically an additional little linkage in there somewhere. It doesn't, you know, it's not. It's yeah, not no, fixed no, yeah, it is. yeah. There's yeah, and there's also varying sort of definitions of what a six bar actually is because there's other ways of doing it. But they developed the system. And the idea of having this six bar thing with a concentric bottom bracket main pivot um, is that it allows them control over the leverage ratio, the anti squat, and the anti rise, all independent is what they say. And the idea of that is to give really good ride quality. So I don't know if it's been published yet, but Luke Marshall has had the Atherton AM130 carbon in for test, which is another six bar design. And he said that it's basically a new benchmark trail bike, like incredible, incredible really? suspension. Um, so there seems to be a thing about six bar suspension in that they are like really, really good. Why now? What has changed in bike design, or perhaps just the market, which has made a six-bar linkage appealing now. Because obviously, like, people have been designing complicated suspension systems mm. forever, and I'm sure theoretically six-bar was possible, but why now are they becoming a talking point? I'll be honest, I don't really know. I, I think the world of downhill influences the world of enduro, which influences the world of trail. Mm. And that sort of control over the suspension linkage is really important in downhill for obvious reasons because you know you you pedaling you pet you brake in and your leverage curves are all super important so maybe it's sort of you know i think we sort of saw them first in the downhill world and maybe it's just a trickle down effect of that maybe it's a packaging thing you know they've worked out how they can do it the og ransom's four years old you know maybe back then it just wasn't a thing that was either on the the discussions of, of bike design, or maybe they didn't have the packaging capabilities. They certainly didn't have the ability to put the shock inside, which has helped them do it because they have linkages inside the frame and all that sort of stuff. So maybe it's just where the world is heading. Mm. Um, mm. Very good, vague answer, Tom. I thanks, like that. Yeah, <laughs> a politician's answer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Generally with integration, like how do you feel about it? And I mean, in addition to the integrated internal shock, like the rest of this bike is very hidden away. Mm. The cables are fully integrated at the front with the exception of the front brake. It's a very neat and tidy looking mm. bike. Is that something 
you like and welcome in a mountain bike of this vibe? Or is it something you turn your nose up at? Obviously mixed. Mixed feelings. Now, I think if you go onto any internet forum and read any sort of mention of internal cable routings, the world explodes. Mm -hmm. They're not a popular thing, it feels. Certainly the vocal minority, if it is a minority, they're very vocal about it. And I totally, as someone who is not particularly maintenance keen... Uh, I once described you as a man with having potato hands. <laughs> and I very much do have potato hands. My my fingers are bananas. So there's two things here. One, like having everything hidden away, kind of, you know, the shock especially, keeping that out of the mud. I mean, you know, there's a lot less maintenance to do on that. Mm-hmm. And so that is a good thing. Having played around with the genius, actually, you can get to the controls pretty easily. You just pop the door off. And really, it's not that much of an issue if you're just setting things up. And you're not going to be touching it super frequently. You're not going to be doing... Yeah, and the same with like the rear brake. Like most people aren't changing their rear brakes all the time. And you can still bleed the brake when it's through the headset. The biggest issue is, of course, changing the top headset bearing, which again, isn't something you actually do all that frequently. Mm-hmm. It's just not something you do that frequently. However. You know, if you are rerouting brakes through there, it is a pain. Getting the cables and hoses under the bars and under the stem and into it is can be a bit of a pain. So I get it from that sort of perspective. I just don't think the reality is people do it that often. I also think, well, two things on that. You know, a lot of these bikes are kind of at the higher end. Mm. And at the higher end, SRAM's transmission wireless stuff does have like quite a bigger hole on market. And therefore, really, on a lot of the bikes, not all of them, and I appreciate, you know, a lot of people do want mechanical group sets, but I would suspect that a lot of those bikes are sold with wireless ones where it's just not a problem. It is just the rear brake. So there's that element. And to be honest, if I was buying a 10 grand bike, you know, these bikes are expensive. If it got to the point where I was really like hacked off with maintaining it, I'd just take it to a shop. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I was at Pedal Bike Away this Mm. weekend. I rode my road bike all the way out to there to have a coffee and then ride home. Yes. But you know, it's, first, it's actually the first time I've been at a trail centre proper, genuinely in years, I reckon, mm-hmm. uh, really showing myself as the right person to host this podcast. Anyway, I was astonished, first off, by how busy it was, mm. how many e-bikes there mm-hmm. were. But what I was most struck by is how expensive all the bikes were. Like, of course, it's not a universal yeah. thing, but like people really are buying high-end bikes mm. and a lot of them are on electronic drivetrains. There are a lot of people who are on transmission yeah. group sets. Like its hold, as you said, has become pretty quick, fat, yeah. like dominant and quick. So hmm, yes, vocal minority perhaps is the best way to describe it. I don't know. I don't know. That's that's a speaking assumption. I think I totally respect those who don't like it. Mm. Like I've worked on, you know, my Merida 140 last year had headset router cables. And as someone who, you know, like had changing dropper posts because it's part of the job, changing brakes because it's part of the job, you know, like I spent a lot of time working on that bike and it was a pain in the ass. It wasn't terrible. Like, it wasn't, like, a 100 times worse than working on any other bike, but it adds a layer of complications. And Scott's Syncross bar stem integration, like, super clean stuff, it is a bit of a hassle to work on. Mm. But I stand by the fact that you're just not going to be doing it that often. Yeah. Well, we want to hear what you think. These are just uh, the thoughts of two rambling fools. Mm. No, no. <laughs> we want to hear what you out there, our listeners, think about integration. It is a topic we cover a lot in the mm, podcast. Mentioned all the time, and in any article, yes. And I think we're, we're. I think to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping in. I'm sorry, Jack, but like, Please. we are guilty ourselves of you know when a bike does or doesn't have cables that go through the headset. We always seem to be writing like oh, mechanics will be happy about this. And maybe they will. I don't know. But, you know, like, Mm. it's something that we jump on constantly. Yeah. 
Well, anyway, we want to hear what you think. Send your thoughts to podcast at bikerader.com. We have previously recorded podcasts on the topic of integration, but I think a revisit, mm. a more formal revisit, perhaps with the input of brands and others, could be quite a fun one to talk yeah, about, 100%. just to he hear what their vibe is, why they're making those decisions, how they take on feedback, that mm. kind of thing. I'd listen to that. I would. Um, <laughs> actually, sorry, I'm going to jump in once more Please, on the whole integration Tom, you know thing. what? I'm so sorry. This is a safe space. You, you can you can jump in like this is a pool. Lovely. There is a bike launching very soon. I'm not going to mention what it is. Because um, you're not allowed. Because I'm not allowed. And I went on the launch of it the other week. And they are offering internal cable routing with cables entering through the head tube with little blanking ports and a headset that comes with top cap that enables you to run it internally, like through the headset, if you want, and through the exterior sort of entry ports, if you want, mm. uh, which I thought was real nice. Apart from on the super, super top end bike, which has wireless gears anyway, and they've moved to a one and a half inch top bearing which they say the vast majority of brake levers can fit through regardless. Oh, interesting. So, does, um, that, does that mean the steerer is also one and a half? Still a tapered steerer, but with a reducer in there. Oh, cool. So, um, Wow. So, yeah, kind of like, yeah, if you want to run it like super clean looking, super sexy, then great, you can do that with mm. your fully through the headset cable routing and all that sort of jazz. And if you are like going to be changing bits and pieces or running cable group sets, you have the option of both. Well... What a tease. I look forward to a podcast in several mm. weeks' time where you discuss this undisclosed bike. It's a secret. <laughs> Next, we go to the pivot switchblade. Tom, I would like you to, as per these notes, give me a general overview of this mm. bike and what it's all about. Okay, so the pivot switchblade is their trail bike, sort of agro trail bike. 142mm travel at the back with a 160mm fork at the front. It is carbon, as you'd expect from pivot, 29-inch wheels, though you can run it mullet with up to 2.8-inch rubber at the back if you're running a 27.5-inch mm. wheel. DW link suspension as per every pivot full suspension bike and yeah the new version is basically being given the long low slack treatment so it's turn wheel longer head angles a degree slacker seat angles a little bit steeper so all the sort of the usual tropes that we give with any trail bike and enduro bike that's released these days basically longer lower slacker they have altered the dw link suspension so dw link if you're not familiar with that designed by dave weagle who is a suspension magician um, some might say, some might not. It's got DW Link bikes all have a very common feel. Mm. I quite like them. Who else does a DW Link, Tom? Then go and pop quiz. Oh God, uh, you've put me on the spot. Well, Atherton's bikes—they're DW Link. Although DW Six, which is a six-bar one, there you go. Um, although I believe they might have aluminium bikes coming, which will be DW Four. One more, go on. Hit me with another, <sighs> just just for fun. Oh, no, I can't. I don't want to put, I don't want to stick. I don't, oh. uh, there's plenty out there. Co-rotating links that aren't VPP. Uh, <laughs> no, too much pressure, too much pressure. I didn't do my research. It's fine. Um, so basically, you've got a front triangle. You've got a rear triangle with no pivots in it. And the front and rear triangle are linked with two co-rotating links. That means when you look at it drive side and you squash suspension, both of those little links rotate clockwise or anticlockwise. They're co-rotating. VPP, so Santa Cruz's, have counter-rotating links, I believe. So top one will rotate anticlockwise and the bottom one will rotate clockwise, I think. Anyway, that's by the by. But they have lengthened the lower link on this generation of the Switchblade, which makes it a little bit plusher uh, and makes it feel a bit more like their Firebird, which is their Enduro bike. With Pivot, perception, mm. it d even affects us, us wonderful, mm. completely unbiased journalists. My perception of Pivot as a brand is it's a very, very 
tech first brand Mm -hmm. that's quite hard to summarize but i always whenever i read their press materials or look at their bikes like they seem very very focused on details and making i mean that you could say this of any brand's ambition but like making the best bikes possible Mm. technically speaking things like for example that they've stuck with super boost rear ends Mm -hmm. slightly controversial ish move less so than it was but like they steadfastly think super boost is mm. there. Has the Switchblade got that as well? It's got that as well. Yeah. Do you agree with that perception, Tom? Is it Pivot a brand that, that kind of chimes with you or am I barking up the wrong tree? No, I, th- I think you're right. Like, they are very performance-focused. They stick with what they like and what they know. You know, DW Link, for example, is across all of their bikes. It's, I hesitate to use a term like geeky, but like the DW Link suspension sort of environment and ecosystem is quite like a tech focus. Yeah. It kind of gives that impression, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, Chris Kakalis, who started the brand, is still involved in it on a day-to-day basis, pretty much. You know, like, they have a very, like, dedicated team, small team, but they make some really good bikes that have a super consistent feel. You know, when you jump on a pivot, it feels like a pivot. They have a very distinct feel to them, from their XC bike all the way up to the Firebird, which I really like. Another question I had on you, like, I feel as well, the perception of the audience, that they have, despite being quite a small brand, they have real cachet Mm. and sort of brand power in the... I don't know, they get a lot of coverage. People are interested in them, certainly the mm-hmm. readers. I don't know whether my perception is slightly coloured by the fact that you don't really see tons of them in the mm. UK. What's the kind of picture like outside of the UK for them? I know it's... I think they're more. they're pretty popular in the US. Mm. You know, they're, they're by sort of numbers a bigger brand in the US than they obviously are in the UK. They're expensive. You know, they're a high-end brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they attract... You know, they've got a core group of fan riders. And I think, you know, in terms of their brand appeal, I think they're a very appealing brand, despite their price. Their bikes look incredible, like their industrial design, their graphics and all that sort of stuff. They're very cool bikes. They're very lustworthy. They're sort of out of the reach of most people, which probably sort of helps that lustworthiness. They've also got that tech angle, you know, like DW, Dave Wieg, all that sort of stuff is kind of if you're in the know, you know, like <laughs> that. that's an attractive thing yeah, to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they also, on the sort of the flip side, they have arguably one of the, the sort of the, in inverted commas, coolest guys riding their bikes, like Eddie Masters, like he's a legend, like hilarious, you know, on the EDR circuit. And then you can't really ignore Bernard Kerr. Like he's one of the, you know, the fastest riders in the world. He's, you know, sort of big into his social media stuff. You know, he's a multiple winner of Red Bull Hardline, which is like one of the gnarliest downhill races in the world. And they're, you know, riding this super cool prototype bike with 3D printed... Oh, yeah, they did lug, that really you know, cool thing. Of, yeah, I forgot about totally that. Cool, you know, it's very cool. Mm. So, like, they appeal both to sort of, like... Maybe the kids who are sort of seeing it all on socials being like, this guy's sick, you know. Big sense and sad nerds like us alike. Exactly. They, they kind of got it all. Mm. So they've built themselves into this super desirable brand. And obviously not everyone's going to desire, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, they're yeah. up there with like the most desirable brands, like the likes of Yeti, arguably Santa Cruz, XYZ. Maybe that's a, cool. a f- <laughs> an idea for a future completely and utterly subjective podcast. <laughs> Cycling's coolest brands. Yeah, totally. I don't, yeah. yeah, well, actually, you could tell us, what do you think of the coolest brands in cycling? What really chime with you? No matter what they do, you just think, yeah, cool. Mm. I like that. Rob Weaver's got, I think it's a 
is it a fire blade long term bike for MBK mm. this year? And um, yes, I saw it. I saw it down <sighs> the shed. It looks wicked. It's so cool, mm. and it's in that split color. So they've done a frame where it's sort of one. You know, if you look at it from one side, it's white, and the other side is blue, and it's sort of the pivot factory racing colors, and it's pretty sick. And I, you know, I've got a very flash long term bike this year. I've got a Yeti SB120, which is very drooly, and like Rob saw it yesterday, he's like, "Oh bloody hell, that is nice, isn't it?" And I was like, "Yeah, but so's yours." <laughs> <laughs> You're so sad. <laughs> well, it's good, Tom. We clearly have the right people on staff. If you and we've still get excited about the bikes that you ride, then clearly you're meant to be here forever. In the right job. Anyway, that's a summary of sort of three biggest news stories we've seen in mountain biking in the last couple of weeks. There is plenty more, of course. Head to bikeradar.com for your daily dose of cycling tech. And if you want more regular updates, why not subscribe to our newsletter? If you scroll to the very, very bottom of Bike Radar, there's a sign-up link there. You can get an email every Tuesday and Friday. <laughs> I had to think there. Tuesday and Friday <laughs> for the, the Bike Radar newsletter. And of course, if you want to hear our podcast, subscribe wherever you listen. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating if you think we deserve it. And please do send your feedback, thoughts on the coolest bike brands, and your feelings on integration to podcast at bikeradar.com. In the meantime, Tom and I are going to go look at each other's cool bikes and, uh, and your ponchos and my ponchos and, and nerd out for a little while longer because there's nothing we enjoy more in life Tom thank you very much thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast if you've not done so already please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode 